Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Burn. Tonight, what would you say to a three-year cruise where you can live and work remotely as you visit all seven continents, 135 countries, 375 ports, all for an annual cost for room and board? That's about what you'd pay for rent in a major world city these days. We find out all about it. It's time tonight for a little more true crime. And renowned criminologist Michael Artfield joins us to talk about why so many murders go unsolved these days compared to 50 years ago and about his new book how to solve a cold case matt killingsworth is one of the world's foremost experts on the study of happiness and his latest research looks into the relationship between money and happiness can it buy happiness we find out but first the collapse of a california-based bank that didn't take deposits in canada may seem like it might not have much impact on your bottom line but it could, and it all has to do with how central banks will approach interest rates following a shock to the financial system. First up tonight, the fallout continued today from the collapse of California-based Silicon Valley Bank on Friday, followed on Sunday by the folding up of New York-based Signature Bank. Now, the collapse of those two banks, the second and third largest bank failures in U.S. history, followed a classic run, bank run, on Silicon Valley Bank last week that saw it go bust in a matter of days. Now, action by U.S. authorities over the weekend, late Sunday, really to guarantee deposits before the opening of business on Monday seems to have worked in preventing panic from spreading throughout the system. On this side of the border, the SVP did have a presence in Canada, but it was only licensed here to issue loans, not to take deposits. So the impact appears to have been fairly muted. And Canada's big banks, big, diversified aren't showing any signs of any of those issues that have been happening to those smaller banks on the other side of the border. But the events of the past week could be felt here in other ways, ways that could have an impact on something very close to a lot of us. Mortgage rates. Why, you ask? What does that have to do with a bank in California that before Friday most had never heard of, right? Well, it has to do with how bond markets directly influence fixed-term mortgage rates. Now, the yield for a five-year Government of Canada bond, they had their largest two-day drop or two-day move, really, in more than a quarter century, ending yesterday, falling dramatically before climbing up a little bit today. Now, that may sound complicated. It isn't really. Uh, I may not have explained it entirely properly, but someone who can is Moshe Lander. He's a senior lecturer in economics at Concordia University in Montreal. Moshe, thank you for your time tonight. Good evening. So uh, tell me a bit about your reaction to this whole what's happened following the collapse of SVB on Friday and then Signature Bank over the weekend and all those moves to try to quell any kind of panic in the system. They seem to have worked. They did. But, you know, it's interesting because when this collapse happened, I think that I'm not unique among many economists that went looking for what is this bank again? Um, yeah. You said that it's the second and third largest collapses in U.S. history, which is true. Uh, but these were two very little known banks. And so it's an indicator of just how fast the banking industry recovered from 2008, that this second and third largest collapse were among banks that even economists didn't know about. Uh, so, uh, you know, when, once you kind of get over that, uh, everything that's gone on since then has been rather textbook. And like you said, it, it's contained what could have been a, a real problem uh, if the authorities on both sides of the border hadn't moved as quickly as they did. 
Now, I have been reading, and this is, you know, you always try to take, it's a bank that many Canadians won't have heard of, so, you know, many of us aren't invested, don't have tech companies that may have borrowed from SVP on the other side of the border. Um, So it's hard to sort of think, well, how will this affect me? And it seems, though, when it comes to mortgage rates, it could have an impact. We're seeing some real movement that could have an impact on the mortgage rates that many of us have to pay. Yeah, you know, I was I was seeing that today that there's now an uh, argument that's being presented that the Bank of Canada, when they meet in April, might now be tempted to lower interest rates uh, rather than probably what was expected, say, last Wednesday, uh, which would have been that they were going to freeze interest rates for the foreseeable future. And so as a way to try and inject liquidity into the banking sector, lowering interest rates would be a, a key uh, way of, of doing that. So, you know, it is possible that they could lower interest rates. Uh, I'm going to actually put myself in the camp that doesn't really believe that's going to happen until I actually see it. But uh, but markets are pricing in that there's maybe about a 40% chance of that happening. Which is remarkable considering last week, or you know, just a, a last week, they had sort of held for the first time in a long time. There was some talk of maybe another slight boost next time around. And all of a sudden, the landscape seems to have changed quite dramatically. What is it? Why would interest, why would, central banks be reconsidering interest rate hikes given this one event? Yeah, so inflation is still a problem. It's probably going to be a problem for the next six to eight months. So lowering interest rates is is not exactly the textbook way that you respond to that threat of inflation. Uh, But the fact is that if there is this fear that maybe banks are less liquid than we thought, one way to inject liquidity into the banking sector is to, in a sense, pump them full of cash. And like any sort of good supply and demand story, if you flood the market with Doritos, don't be surprised when Dorito prices fall. If you flood the market with liquidity, don't be surprised if the price of that liquidity falls too. And so the, the key measure of that price of liquidity is the interest rate. And so it's, it, it's possible uh, that in order to try and shore up the banking system, if there's a fear that this is not an isolated incident, uh, then you could imagine that interest rates could fall. Now, I don't think they're going to go back to... Uh, early 2022 levels, I think at best it might undo the January interest rate increase. But the fact is that we're talking here in mid-March that maybe interest rate cuts could come much sooner than what we thought. Yeah, a 40% chance is still seems like 40% higher than it was about seven days ago. So that's uh, that in of itself. Tell me a bit about the bond market and how that impacts five-year mortgage rates, because I was looking at that again today. And, you know, bond uh, yields have been, on five-year bond yields for the government of Canada bonds have been falling quite dramatically. Actually, they bumped up a little bit today, uh, but fell quite dramatically on Monday and, on you know, through Friday and into Monday. Uh, how does that impact mortgage rates uh, that we may see? So, you know, there's the old song about, you know, the ankle bones connected to the shin bone, the shin bones connected to the and so on. Right. So all of these interest rates are connected to each other. And so when one of them moves, uh, almost all of them will move in lockstep with each other. And and, and the starting point, that ankle bone, I guess, uh, in the interest rate story is the overnight rate, which is which is the Bank of Canada's key rate. So if they did decide that they wanted to move that down, then you would expect that all interest rates, the prime rate, uh, bond rate, everything would, would go down almost in lockstep. And so the fact that there is now a 40% chance that this might happen, the bond market says, hey, we don't have to wait until April for the Bank of Canada to announce it. If we believe it's going to happen, then we need to start moving today in advance of that. Uh, and so that's why you're seeing then that, you know, the, the bond market is kind of responding uh, and, and signaling what they think is going to happen. Now, like you said, it recovered a little bit of that movement today. So 
uh, you know, maybe sober minds are now saying, yeah, but are they really going to cut interest rates? Uh, but we could see this now kind of yo-yoing for the next four weeks until the next Bank of Canada meeting, while the bond market tries to read the tea leaves and figure out what exactly is going on inside the Bank of Canada. I think the rest of us are trying to figure out what's going on, period, Moshe, because in this case, it just seems like things are so, it moved so fast. This has happened so quickly that it's hard to kind of catch your breath and try to figure out what's happening because we were kind of on a steady path for many, many months. Inflation was high. Interest rates were rising both here and elsewhere. And all of a sudden, this kind of comes and throws a spanner in those works. And that's why it's always great when you ask economists to give a forecast, right? <laughs> right, of course. Yeah, no crystal balls. Yeah. That's that's exactly it. So you, you just never know what tomorrow will bring. So, uh, yeah, the, the, the reality is that inflation is still a problem. And there are a host of interest rate increases in 2022 that have yet to have their full effect uh, in 2023. So, like I said, if they if they undo one of those interest rate increases, that's not going to unleash inflation instantaneously. And, uh, you know, you could still see that inflation will slow in 2023. But uh, the, the issue now is... Uh, that you know the finance minister and the governor of the Bank of Canada and the various different uh, organizations that oversee financial markets in this country are probably going to do a deep dive and try and make sure that the big six banks in this country are safe. Uh, they're not going to suffer from, say, contagion from the SVB meltdown, but they just want to make sure that, hey, if it could happen there, it could happen here. And let's just make sure that it's not going to happen here. Uh, and so rather than wait for a crisis to happen, let's move preemptively. And so I think if they give the all clear, then you'll see the bond market say, all right, I, I don't think that that interest rate is is going to be necessary. Uh, but if they find that there's a smoking gun and that there's you know the potential that something could be uh, wrong in the Canadian banking sector, you don't want to take these risks because you don't want that 24, 48 hour crisis where you have to quickly shut down a bank or or take these drastic measures. Uh, to shore up the system better you know what, what's the phrase the an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure or something like that it's good news for canada it's good news for auto sector but it's good news for our workers because uh when you talk about the energy transition uh that we're seeing and seizing the moment in a once in a lifetime uh transition from the combustion engine to um the electric um vehicle i think that with players like volkswagen we can say uh, mission accomplished you know today canada won big time federal industry minister francois philippe champagne yesterday announcing that volkswagen plans to build an electric vehicle battery plant in st thomas ontario starting in 2027 uh, moisha lander is with us he is a professor of economics at concordia university in montreal moisha this was a big deal it sounds like it was a big deal big win for ontario obviously Yeah, uh, you know, I actually grew up in London, Ontario, which is maybe 25 kilometers north of St. Thomas. So, you know, the the entire area uh, uh, around the 401, which is the main highway running from Windsor all the way to Cornwall, is littered with auto factories and all of the ancillary companies that that feed that. Uh, From St. Thomas, uh, connecting to the 401 would be very easy. And getting the materials that you need to feed that uh, electric battery plant are going to mostly come from northern Ontario. So it, it's a it's a perfect situation uh, geographically, uh, financially, economically. So it, it's certainly a win for southwestern Ontario. And, and it shows a commitment to keeping the auto industry alive in this country, uh, but transitioning to something that's going to hopefully be cleaner and, and last through the century.
Everyone was being pretty cagey yesterday, though, about just how much the government is pouring into this, because I was reading, now, Oklahoma, Tulsa, Oklahoma was another place that was up for this, and I was reading that they had sort of ponied up about nearly a billion dollars to try to lure someone there, including Volkswagen. Do you think we had to pay a lot of money to try and bring Volkswagen to Southern Ontario? Oh, I'm sure it's a lot of money to you and me, but <laughs> the grand scheme of things, I'm not sure that that's a, you know, it's a lot of money. The The plant itself is going to run into the billions of dollars. And the, the thought is that it's going to create uh, maybe at least 2,500, if not say 5,000 jobs. And like I said, it, it, it's partly signaling the, the security of uh, the auto industry in Ontario, which of course is the main, main driver, pun intended, uh, of that economy. So when it contributes about uh, $17 billion, give or take, to the Canadian economy. Uh, you know, what's a billion dollars among friends? Indeed, indeed. And and because everyone thought, I mean, looking at the landscape right now with the Inflation Reduction Act in, in effect in America, it was felt that Canada would have a hard time competing for some of these things. So that of itself, the timing and the, the ability to actually land it uh, is big. It's the first Volkswagen haven't built anything outside of North America when it comes to battery construction. So this is the first one that they're building outside of Europe, rather. Yeah, and if it's successful, uh, then of course that sends the signal to everybody then that Ontario really is open for business. And maybe subsequently then you don't need as much of a sweetener in the form of government subsidies to try and attract further companies to come. Uh, the, the good news for southwestern Ontario is that there have been recent closures uh, in auto-related uh, companies. So part of the signal to VW was maybe not just the government sweeteners, but that there's a readily trained workforce that is familiar with the industry. And so minimal retraining would be necessary to absorb a lot of those people back into the economy. The, the thought of going into, say, uh, the U.S., where the labor market is also very tight, uh, might suggest that finding labor is a problem. And of course, that, that's been an issue that we've been talking about uh, in Canada in all kinds of industries for the last year is that problem of, of just finding labor, let alone retaining it. And this must bode well for the future of this business, because, of course, the government, different governments have been talking a lot about trying to trying to have some play in this growing EV market. And this would this would be it. Yeah, and, and it, it fits with the government's goals, right? The government keeps saying that they're committed to trying to clean up the environment and to take, you know, carbon taxes uh, seriously. Um, the, the fact that you can draw a, a internationally recognized company uh, with, with such a wide, wide footprint uh, and show a commitment to clean energy development while still maintaining the auto industry, it's kind of a win-win. So again, you know, if it's a billion dollars, if it's $2 billion, hey, look, taxpayers have to pay that, of course, and nobody likes having to pay taxes unnecessarily. But the thought that this can fit in with what the government is trying to accomplish and signal that, hey, we're taking this seriously now, you know, maybe it's money well spent. Moshe Lander, thank you so much for your time tonight. Anytime. Can money bring you happiness? Or better yet, can it buy you happiness? Well, the answer for the most part appears to be absolutely it can. Now, you may remember back about a decade ago, there was a landmark study from a Nobel Prize winning economist and psychologist called Daniel Kahneman that found that emotional well-being rose with income, but that there was no further progress beyond an annual income of $75,000, I guess US in this case, but seventy-five dollars that was the plateau. You were happy, 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 then you weren't happy anymore after that. Well, now Kahneman and another prominent researcher called Matt Killingsworth have revisited that study and co-authored a new one that kind of overturns that theory, or at least it expands it to include a little bit more. 
Here's what that means. The new study shows that happiness does not plateau at $75,000 and that it can continue to rise with income well beyond three times that. In fact, on average, larger incomes are associated with ever-increasing levels of happiness. But there is a catch, and it goes back to that 2010 study that found that unhappy people do indeed plateau out at a certain point. In other words, earning more money can indeed make you happier, but if you're unhappy to begin with, well, money can't buy it for you. Simple? Kind of. Joining me now is Matt Killingsworth. He's a senior fellow at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania who investigates the nature and causes of human happiness. Sounds like a great course to take if you can take it. He's the creator of something called www.trackyourhappiness.org, where a lot of this data comes from. It's a global research project that uses smartphones to study happiness in real time during everyday life. Matt, thank you. Thank you. This, uh, we've talked, I mean, I distinctly remember when that study came out that spoke of happiness plateauing at about $75,000 a year, and it created a lot of, there was a lot of chatter about it. Uh, what have you done with that study? I gather you've gone out in what's called a adversarial collaboration, which sounds, which sounds quite uh, dramatic, but I gather it's quite common. As you mentioned back in 2010, there's this now very famous study that showed that happiness rose with income, but plateaued beyond around $75,000. And then a couple years ago in 2021, I published a contradictory finding, also showing that happiness rose in the low low range of incomes, but also showed that even as people got richer, way above $75,000, their happiness kept rising. And so the lead author of that paper, Danny Kahneman, uh, and I got together in an adversarial collaboration to try to figure out if we could explain why these two studies found different results and what is the true relationship. What did you find? What we found essentially is that for most people, higher incomes keep predicting higher happiness, even way beyond $75,000. So you're right, (laughs) Not, not to put a fine point on it, but your theory seems to have been correct. As kind of the general conclusion, I, I think that's right. H- however, there's, there turns out to be a really good reason uh, that the earlier study had found what they found, which is when we went back and read it very carefully, what we noticed was that they weren't measuring happiness in general so much as they were really measuring the kind of unhappy end of the happiness distribution. And it turns out when I look amongst unhappy people, I find exactly the same result in my data. Unhappy right. people get a lot happier up to around $75,000 after we adjusted for inflation and some other things, it was about 100,000, but up to about that level, unhappy people get much happier, but then beyond about $100,000, there's essentially no difference. So once we're kind of matching what's being measured between the two studies, we find exactly the same thing. And, And that's why we conclude that there's kind of this overall relationship, more money is associated with more happiness without any sort of plateau in general, but there's this subset of pretty unhappy people where it's very important to not be poor if you're unhappy, if possible. But if you have a good amount of money and you're still pretty miserable, more money probably isn't the answer. So in a transactional way, if you're unhappy, big money doesn't buy you the happiness that you don't already have. It just enhances what you've got if you're already not an unhappy person. That's exactly right. It kind of amplifies whatever's going on. I mean, I think other people have made kind of a similar point, like getting rich or becoming powerful doesn't change your personality, but it sort of amplifies whatever's going on. So maybe some people become very generous and other people maybe become not so kind and generous once they're in that position of power. Happiness is tough to define, right? I mean, I think we all know what unhappy looks like, but we're 
not so clear on what happy could look like. That sounds like a bit of a misnomer, but still, uh, where did you find the correlation increase, uh, regardless of how much, I mean, higher incomes? I guess it's intuitive that if you made more money, you'd have more time to focus on things that make you happy, but that doesn't always seem to be the case. In my earlier paper, in the 2021 paper, I looked quite a bit at trying to understand, well, what is it? about higher incomes that can explain why higher earners are happier. And the overwhelming explanation actually was that as people earned more money, they felt more in control of their lives. In a sense, you could kind of say more money bought more freedom for them to live their life the way they wanted to live it. That makes perfect sense, doesn't it? I mean, it's not um, compared to that 2010 study, which was talked about so much. I, I guess now that you put it that way, they're complementary. What you did and the previous study and your study essentially complement each other. The data are actually perfectly consistent now that we've done this adversarial collaboration, even though their conclusions conflict. Essentially, the earlier study was right, but it was true among a narrower range of people than was realized at the time. You get a lot of data through your program, www.trackhappiness, trackyourhappiness.org. Money is just one, one of the ingredients in this large recipe that is happiness. That's exactly right. And I, I really think of it in just that way. Money or income is one of them, and it matters to a moderate degree. You know, you certainly can't reduce the pursuit of happiness to the pursuit of money. That would be a mistake. Um, but it's sort of one piece that adds to it. In my research more generally, I'm trying to understand how all of those different pieces come together to try to make good lives. I mean, ultimately, I want to try to use science and, you know, use these smartphones we carry around that, you know, sometimes kind of annoy us. Uh, can we use those for good and try to understand how could we actually build better lives in the future? And when you found that there was, in fact, a plateau for those who are unhappy, why is that? Why would it plateau? Because that seems they wouldn't be less unhappy, but but they mightn't be more unhappy, right? Yeah, it's it's sort of surprising. So, you know, it's it's hard to say for sure. Our, our speculation is that whatever is making those well-off but unhappy people miserable, it's something that money can't solve maybe their money can kind of get them in trouble too. I mean, sometimes you hear about people that win the lottery and so maybe their life becomes wonderful, but also maybe it becomes really troubled. So there could be a mixture of factors going on in sort of that well-off but unhappy group. Um, but in any case, it seems like, you know, whatever they're doing with their additional money, it's not able to resolve whatever it is that's making them unhappy. What other things have you found that have been surprising? I watched something that you talked about when you talked about how mind wandering makes people seems to have a correlation to unhappiness. I found that to be a really interesting finding. That's right. So in some other research, I've looked at how people's propensity to focus on the present moment versus mind wandering is actually pretty strongly related to how happy they are. When I measured people in real time and asked them, are you thinking about something other than what you're doing, which is this one way of measuring mind wandering, what I find is that people are engaged in mind wandering almost half of the time. So they spend a huge amount of their life devoting some of their attention to something that's not happening right now. And it turns out that when people do that, they very, very reliably tend to be but unhappy group than when they're purely focused on the present. You compared it to a slot machine where you could lose 50, 20 or a dollar, $50, $20 or a dollar. No one would ever play. Uh, I guess mind wandering is something that we do. I mean, things enter your, when you're trying to focus on the moment, things that are bugging you enter one's mind when you're mind wandering. And I guess that you don't often sort of daydream about a great vacation you took. You daydream, daydream about something that you said to someone 15 years ago and why you're still angry about it. Yeah. Well, the, the, the slot machine metaphor that I sometimes mention relates to the fact that 
the sort of distribution of, you know, possible experiences you can have when you're mind wandering kind of range from at best about as good as the reality you're leaving to at worst something much less happy. Mind wandering really seems to be this kind of probabilistic random process where it's really difficult for people to control what they end up thinking about. Maybe you start daydreaming about something sort of benign, but then three minutes later, you're thinking about, you know, some project that's overdue and you're really stressing out about it or, you know, something else going on in your life. And kind of the portfolio of experiences that tends to produce is reliably much less happy than when people are able to stay rooted in the present. And kind of surprisingly, that turns out to be true no matter how good or bad the reality is you're leaving behind. So even when people are doing something that's kind of unpleasant, like, you know, you're cleaning the bathroom or whatever it might be, people are actually very systematically happier uh, when they just focus on doing that task than when they allow their thoughts to stray to something else. Interesting. So live in the moment, or at least try to shake away those unhappy thoughts. If you find yourself drifting off into something unpleasant, mm-hmm. try to shake it, shake, shake it off and focus on what you're doing. Uh, a little more salary never hurt. What else have you found in this, this great research that you're doing? Uh, Cause it's right around the world, right? With, we, with smartphones, you sort of touch base with them daily. Is that how it works? And you sort of ask, how happy are you right now? That's right. So I'm asking people, I sort of ping them in the moment as they're going about their lives. So they get a little ping uh, at some random moment. And then I'll ask them a series of questions like how happy they feel, what they're doing, who they're with, how much they slept last night, a whole bunch of different factors. There are many, many things I've I've discovered through this project. One of the things that I find have found most interesting is just that people's moment-to-moment happiness is really quite variable. Even people that are pretty happy really have some moments when they're pretty unhappy. Uh, I think for a lot of us, we kind of imagined that if we were, you know, truly happy people, we would just be, you know, reliably happy all the time. And when we encounter these moments when we're kind of struggling, we might sort of think of that as evidence that like, oh, I guess I'm not so happy or maybe my life isn't so great. But it turns out that some amount of suffering is kind of inevitable, even for the happiest people. And so what I sort of take away from that is that if we want to improve the quality of our lives, it's not going to be by some kind of, you know, permanent, unvarying happiness. Instead, it's just by kind of adding up some small factors that push us in a sort of happier direction, but accept that, you know, some of the time we're going to suffer and maybe some of that suffering is even, you know, important or useful to us. Yeah, we we put an awful lot of pressure on ourselves to be happy, don't we? Absolutely. Way, Way too much, I think. I mean, the way I sort of reconcile that is that I think we want to build a life that's happy and we want to do that in a way that's really informed and in the way in a way that we can be successful but at the same time we don't want to sit there worrying about happiness itself <laughs> too much so you kind of need to reconcile this paradox of how do i you know construct a life that i'm really going to find you know enjoyable and fulfilling and meaningful habits of like you know going to the gym every day or something like that you just want to sort of set those conditions in place but then not stress about them too much from day to day I found the mind wandering one to be something that it was to me was was an out was an outlier. I mean, I didn't know that at all. Um, anything else from that data that sort of jumps out at you that could help the rest of us understand a little bit about the the very complex nature of happiness? Another very general truth is that doing things that are social is better than things that are non-social. Taking any given situation and making it social seems to improve people's happiness. Maybe that could be as simple as bothering to you know chat for a minute with the person at the grocery store as you're checking out, kind of adding these little like social injections in our life 
uh, is really associated with an improvement in happiness. And you found all this to be true across a wide spectrum of people who are taking part in this project, right? That's right. Tens, if not maybe even hundreds of thousands of people now and many millions of observations. I mean, this is one of the biggest studies of happiness that I think has ever been conducted. So all all the things that I'm saying are kind of from a statistician standpoint, these are things that are very reliably true, at least on average. And, and right across a bunch of demographics and income groups the, and education the, groups. Like that's what I found. That's, that's the really interesting part of it is you have such a wide cross-section the, of people talking right. about the same stuff. Yeah, I think people are a lot less different from each other than they imagine. There are some ways in which we are importantly different for happiness, but people kind of operate in the same ways. And so the recipe for happiness for you know one person, for the most part, tends to be pretty similar for another one. I mean, in the same way that a lot of you know the food we find delicious is mostly shared across people. There are some exceptions. By and large, a delicious meal as well as a happy life is is relatively consistent across people. And so, I think for us, us individually and society as a whole, the challenge for us over the next you know the coming decades and hundreds of years is like how do we create a world where humans can really live you know enjoyable and fulfilling lives? You dispelled the whole idea of, or you looked at the whole idea of money and happiness and its correlation. What next? Lots of things. Actually, one more set of stuff that I'm looking at with income that I I can't quite talk about yet, but I'm excited about. Um, I have some things around how to measure and sort of understand what happiness is. That's sort of a a deep question, but I think I I hope to have some new and interesting answers there. And looking at a lot of other features of, of people's lives. So I mentioned people's social life as one example, but basically every dimension of life that you can think of our social life, our life at work, uh, our life in terms of our community. I mean, all of these things are things that I'm studying. And I ultimately want to kind of put that all together to try to understand what's the sort of comprehensive recipe for human happiness. Matt Killingsworth, thank you so much. Thank you. A little more than 55 years ago, at 8 a.m. on February 9th, 1968, a nine-year-old boy went missing while walking to school in London, Ontario. All who knew him described Frankie as a sweet, soft-spoken kid, last seen as he waved goodbye to his parents that fateful morning. A massive search for the boy after he failed to turn up for class turned up nothing. Two months later, uh, his body was found in the nearby Thames River. As a young boy, my next guest would walk the same route that that young boy had taken years earlier, a memory that would linger as he went on to become a police officer in London, Ontario, and a detective, and then a criminologist at London's Western University. It is one of the cases that Michael Artfield, the author of Murder City, the untold story of Canada's serial murder capital, 1959 to 1984, covers. In those decades, London once suffered the highest concentration of serial killers on earth. 16 of those 29 cases, including that of Frankie Jensen, were never wrapped up. Again, officially, the murder of Frankie Jensen has never been solved, uh, but it is a case that the Cold Case Society at Western University uh, that Artfield formed back in 2011 looked into. And that leads us to his latest book called How to Solve a Cold Case. The Jensen murder is not the exception, and that is even truer today than it was more than a half century ago. The percentage of murder cases solved has dropped from around 90% back in 1965 to around 60% now, and Artfield believes that number is actually closer to 50%. In his latest book, he digs into why that is, who exactly is getting away with murder here, and what can be done to try to boost the so-called clearance rate. And Part of the answer could involve folks like you and me. 
criminologist Michael Artfield, a former London, Ontario police detective, a professor at Western University, and author of books including Murder City and his latest, How to Solve a Cold Case, and everything else you always wanted to know about catching killers joins me now. Michael, thank you. Thanks for having me on, Ben. An interesting story about how you got involved in this. It goes back to your childhood. I think so many of us remember back to sort of those crimes that touched us intimately when we were kids. And your interest in in cold cases and catching killers goes back a long way. Yeah, I mean, I didn't really think about this until much later, but it's just interesting, again, how those formative years uh, and your first introduction to stories of crime can ultimately even unconsciously shape your interests. So, I mean, I, I walked the the path to school taken by a boy about 20 years earlier. So I would have been, you know, eight or nine at the time. And I learned of this local true boogeyman story where he was snatched along that route and his body found in a river outside the city several weeks later. He'd been kidnapped and, and murdered uh, and the killer was never found. And this is a pretty... I mean, this is is on the forested fringes of the city, like uh, sort of your, your typical uh, sedate suburbia. And for this to happen, the the concern was always, you know, had to be someone from the neighborhood. And the fact he was never caught cast a pall over sort of this uh, Main Street Canadiana, and everyone sort of suspected. And there's all the innuendo, you know, that you know this person moved after the fact, but the you know the the wife still lives there. So there's always just this ominous presence. And I always wondered how that come to pass. I mean, as a kid, you believe that police catch all bad guys and there's consequences. I mean, your parents instill in you there's consequences for everything. So the fact that this was unresolved and this person still out there was jarring for all the neighborhood kids. And this was a story that got passed down. And then ultimately, I become a police officer for different reasons. And then the case sort of comes full circle back to me. Right. And I, I begin looking into it. And then ultimately, the answer avails itself. And yes, he was from the neighborhood. He was not there when I was a child. But all that ends up being the fodder of of Murder City, which is the the tell all about what actually happened. Right. This all happened in London, Ontario, of course, where my where my grandparents are from. Actually, my mom's parents are from there. I know what a quiet town it is. So, the fact that it had um, had these sorts of serial killers in it yeah. was to me shocking when I when I read uh, Murder City. London is sort of uh, the the great equalizer, I call it. Everyone knows someone from there, went to Western or went to school there, has a family member from there or passed through there at some time, given its proximity to Detroit and Toronto, and yet managed for many years to sort of avoid the the conventional crime problems of those two cities. It was sort of uh, the Goldilocks effect of being in between. And yet behind the scenes, there's this seldom discussed, very dark chapter of of about 25 years no other uh, industrialized nation had this ratio of serial killers to civilians uh, per capita. And you ended up tracking down that person who loomed over your childhood imagination as well. As it turns out, the detective assigned to that case and many other London cases, serial sexual homicides of, of, of teens and children in the city, was equally obsessed with it and knew precisely who did it and essentially ran the guy out of town and tried to keep tabs on him as he, as he moved around as best was possible at that point in the late 60s, early 70s. But he left all the notes indicating who this was, this guy's movements before, during, and after the crimes, and the names of killers and other crimes, both known and unknown to the public, 
in a cache of old uh, letters and, and notes that it would have found by his son upon his death. And then he gave them to me to make sense of. So, I mean, it's like a, an archeological discovery that had tremendous implications in terms of writing history and, and, and what, and, and really a leap forward in terms of criminology as well. Because there's so much true crime out there. Uh, we have this idea that murders get solved. At least they get solved regularly. And a lot of what you point out in, in your latest book is that that's not the case. What is the truth there? So currently, and most of the data is, is from the U.S. where Canadians will scoff at this, but Canadian data is not especially reliable. U.S. data, based on the methods we use at the Murder Accountability Project, is far more reliable we have tabulated the greatest number of murders held in any database at murderdata.org that's publicly searchable. And we confirmed that 2022, since records were kept in 1929, marked the, the poorest solved rate for murder in, in law enforcement history. The, the national clearance rate, which is essentially the resolution rate or the solved rate, was just over 50%, far lower than that in some beleaguered cities and counties, far better than that in some other areas, admittedly. But what happens is the the, the statistical mean is about 51.5%, which overall is a coin toss as to whether a murder gets solved or not. And by solved, I mean just a suspect identified and arrested. This doesn't necessarily mean... Uh, successfully prosecuted. The, even in the cleared cases, there's no guarantee that the case doesn't fall apart and that the police have it right. Law enforcement organizations, the FBI, the NCIS, uh, all these federal agencies that you see glamorized on TV have never properly tabulated and reported the murders they investigate. Canada, were about 70%. But again, I don't trust those records because the additional records I've asked for, they refuse to disclose. In the criminal justice system, the people are represented by two separate yet equally important groups, the police who investigate crime and the district attorneys who prosecute the offenders. These are their stories. Michael Arntfield is with us this half hour. His latest book, he's a criminologist at Western University. His latest book is called How to Solve a Cold Case. Uh, you mentioned before the break that that very... The, the solving or the clearance rate, as it's called, is far lower now than it was 50 years ago, which will come to a surprise as a lot of people considering how much attention there's paid to cold cases these days. What do you think is behind it? Because there must be a, a myriad of reasons, but you've talked about funding, technology, lack of sort of a, a focus, sort of shift away from, you know, boots on the ground kind of work. Yeah, I mean, there is no single determinant. I mean, this is a class example, and it's overused in some cases, but in terms of recognizing systemic problems, what they call the Swiss cheese model, which is when you have enough seemingly small holes or seemingly small issues and they begin to overlap and overline, you've got a hole right through the entire organization in one end, out the other, which which is paralyzing and crippling um, when it's not a block of cheese and it's a it's a major law enforcement or organization or a corporate municipality. So, yeah, staffing is a big issue. Police burnout uh, and cynicism and recruiting and retention. I just saw a, an article today. The NYPD's unscheduled resignation and retirement rate has gone up 250 percent in the last two years. Um, so they, they 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 do not have enough officers to respond to nine one one calls, much less try to manage cold cases. So resources, politics, unfortunately, has a lot to do with it. There's a confluence, a multiplicity of issues, uh, including, unfortunately, because we saw this in 2020, 
and again, worse in 2022, uh, which is, again, growing distrust as well of, of law enforcement. So they're both exter- internal and external variables within a, a law enforcement organi- uh, organization that makes it increasingly difficult to devote the resources necessary to solving murders, which in many U.S. cities also uh, starting to climb again in terms of numbers. You've referred to something called homicide economics, too, and I think anyone who follows crime would understand how that works, and that is that certain victims and certain killers are focused on in a far different way than others. That's true. I mean, there is no sort of conspiracy behind this. Optically, certain victims will be treated differently. And this is, of course, where true crime gets involved because cases get cherry picked because of a certain angle that can be worked or a certain narrative value. And once upon a time, and that's not that long ago, three, four years ago, law enforcement, if they were other than some productions like major U.S. network productions like your 2020s and your and your datelines, I mean, if a podcaster or a or a or just a production company looking to make a cable show approach the police department about a case, they'd be told to get lost. Well, now you see almost unequivocally, police will cooperate regardless of the scale of these productions. So to say that true crime is not influencing police, the, the self-awareness and insight police have and how they're being depicted, how their investigations are being characterized, I think would be naive. So so it is operationally now creating a hierarchy of victims. Tell me a bit about DNA, because I found that a really interesting part of, of, of what you've put forth is that in some ways, of course, DNA has been been a godsend, right? Uh, when it comes to solving, we think of genealogy or, or, or mitochondrial DNA and how that's helped out. But at the same time, you said that DNA has become sort of an all or nothing situation when it comes to investigating these cases. And that may be partly to explain for why we see this declining clearance rate. Forensic DNA has had a number of life cycles. Initially, people were very skeptical of it. I mean, if you remember the OJ trial, nobody understood it. People were very suspicious of it. And then ultimately, there's this system in the US and Canada, combined DNA index system, CODIS as it's known, that that standardized and regulated how DNA was collected, how it was analyzed, how matches to offenders or between crime scenes were established and, and how they were actioned. Uh, and that cleared up a lot of cases and, and, and uh, allowed really DNA to become a major tool for law enforcement to the extent that within a couple of years, when you didn't have DNA and had to resort to more circumstantial evidence, which for you know 200 years is how cases got solved, it, it really was deflating for a lot of investigators who then sort of said, well, may, you know, maybe one day, and this is proving to be true, you know, DNA technology will improve and, and, and we can retest this. But for now, this is going on the back burner. I'm going to focus on the low hanging fruit. And the same thing with with juries. I mean, I, I remember a case is detailed in the book. It wasn't a murder. It was a very violent home invasion robbery, though, as a result of the item from which we recovered DNA and the fact that it was exposed to the elements for a little bit. Uh, we went to court with a case where the, the chances of it being uh, somebody else were like one in like a half a million. Well, juries were used to hearing these, especially by this point, all the CSI shows were on air. They're used to hearing infinitesimal numbers like one in 50 billion. So one in half a million was actually then deemed, despite all the other evidence we had, fingerprint evidence, video evidence, considered, nah, that's not good enough. So it it created these unreasonable expectations. I think that if a case doesn't have DNA and this, 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 these concepts began to trickle down to investigators. If a case doesn't have DNA, it's the juice isn't worth the squeeze. 
down the road if you're going to bring this this case forward and ultimately all these cases then got paved over with with other cases where offenders were, were sloppier and left dna what we're seeing now then is investigators who backburnered those cases and you know 20 years ago that that day's come to fruition where yeah uh, with investigative genetic genealogy and, and and the locating offenders or narrowing down uh, suspect pools through genealogy. I mean, by, back in the early 2000s, you needed a tablespoon of blood, for instance, left at a scene uh, or the bodily fluids to run tests. They're testing, I mean, micrograms of that now, nanograms even, anything even just briefly brushed against by an offender 20 years later, if it was properly preserved, can yield a usable sample. So when you you factor in the enhanced testing combined with the genetic genealogical component, any cold case where there is a surviving exhibit or piece of physical evidence is now theoretically solvable thanks to these advances. Michael, you use some examples in your book about about how that works. And I think Samuel Little is one that you use uh, to highlight this. Who was Samuel Little and what is it about his case that you think exemplifies some of the issues we're seeing around around clearance rates and how we could do better? Well, Sam Little was uh, a drifter who was arrested and convicted in California for three murders. He came to the attention once sort of his the nature of his crimes, the MO involved came to light or was publicly revealed. And, and this was not like a, a, a banner headline type of case. I mean, he was a, a, a later aged African-American male uh, with with no sort of social media presence. Uh, he's a drifter. But ultimately, through law enforcement circles, word of his arrest and the crimes in California came to the attention of an investigator in Texas who thought that that sounded an awful lot like a cold case he had inherited and had been following. Uh, so he met with Little, confirmed that Little was in Texas at the time of, of these murders, of this murder, which then turned into other murders and then turned into murders in nearly every state. And there's been prolific false confessors like this before. As recently, well, not that recently, I suppose, but the 70s and 80s, when serial killers sort of became in vogue, uh, it was it was very common for offenders to inflate their body count and, and tag law enforcement along with these confessions. But our, our methods for corroborating these confessions are obviously much better now. And it was confirmed that A, he was in these cities when he said he was, and, and B, that he's killed uh, these women who were the subject of, of cold case investigations and more. I got away with uh, numerous murders of women in my life over a span of 50 years. Mm -hmm. Where did you kill the most? Oh, that's that's easy. Uh, Florida and California. Yeah. What city did you kill the most in? Miami and Los Angeles. How many did you kill in Los Angeles? Los Angeles, uh, approximately 20. There's several sketches that have been released publicly of of women, Jane Doe's, uh, that little remembers murdering and how they looked before he killed them. So he sketches them, but nobody knows who they are. They, they're in paupers' graves all over the U.S. And, and probably were never properly investigated as homicides. Uh, so he's now confirmed to be the most prolific serial killer in, in U.S. history. And it's just worth noting that until he got to California, none of these cases of, of these women he murdered, other typically women on the margins, women of color, drifters, uh, sex trade workers, none of them, their deaths weren't subject to any public appeals or any media coverage. And in fact, a, a lot of them are, are, are probably 
what we call the missing missing. And these are the women that he sketched. So they've gone missing because they've been murdered and buried and or concealed somewhere. And nobody has reported them missing or investigated their murders because nobody's bothered to notice until Little said, and by the way, here's another 30 women. I don't, I don't know their names. But I remember what they look like. And certainly there's been no matches to, to these sketches in order to get a face to match the name so far. A reminder, of course, of the Robert Picton. I mean, that was ultimately solved, but also a reminder of the Robert Picton case here, where a lot of these unsolved murders um, do depend on on who the victim is. Uh, what did you think about the what about the little case? Do you think highlighted what it is you were getting at in the book? Well, I think a few things. I mean, I obviously began, but we, uh, begin the book with that case as as sort of a it takes the temperature of of where we are right now in in terms of how many of these people are out there, how many people. I mean, so so take one in two, the clearance rate's now one in two. That's one in two killers left to kill again. Now, not, they won't necessarily do that. But when we look at many of the types of murders going unsolved, for instance, 51 women strangled uh, in Chicago by strangers and left outdoors and various uh, indignities offered to their bodies. We know that's one or two prolific offenders that until we started researching these numbers, police there... A, didn't know existed, and B, then refused to admit existed until they got a new chief of detectives who, who said, well, this is inarguable. Chicago has a Sam Little or two Sam Littles. Other cities do as well. I think there's this misconception, again, that, that serial offenders are criminal geniuses or supervillains who know how to get away with it. In many cases, like Sam Little, it's just that their victims uh, don't garner uh, the, the same degree of, of effort by police agencies that need to, based on, again, being uh, hamstrung financially and in terms of human resources, have to triage and prioritize their cases. As again, it's not that they do not care. It's that they do not have the bandwidth to care about everyone equally unless they are incentivized to do so. Yeah. And you brought up in your TED Talk, you have a, a statistic that that is pretty pretty shocking about just how, given that, just how likely each of us is to come across someone of like that at some point in our lives, even just casually quickly. Yeah. And again, this is hypothetical yeah. based on the numbers. And when you look at populations in in, in certain cities where we know these offenders are, are likely operating or have been confirmed to have operating. And and, and yeah, you're you're likely to to directly or indirectly, and indirectly is 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 loosely applied, but I mean in terms of occupy the same space as uh, up to 15 separate serial killers over the course of your life. And again, depending where you live, that increases even more. The other statistic in the book, I don't know if you remember this, is when, and and to be clear, uh, you're dead or you're not, and a person is arrested or they're not. So this is not, uh, you know, 77% of, of, you know, consumers between 18 and 35 prefer this brand of soap. Sure. This is, uh, these are major quality of life statistics that that reveal much bigger problems and when you hear numbers like you know the the homicide rate last year in the US was you know one per say 240,000 people well again that's nationally and that's a statistical mean if you live in a city like Philadelphia or uh, St. Louis for that matter which I, I cite in the book which has consistently been one of the most violent cities in in the US over the course of of the republic if you are born in St. Louis live your life in St. Louis retire in St. Louis, by the time you're 65, the, the compounded or aggregated risk is, is is closer to like one in 15. So that all of a sudden doesn't sound like as, as a far out stat, like, oh, that's not going to happen to me. 
that's a that's that's pretty compelling. Michael, this is a really interesting way of looking at it because, as you rightly point out, police are stretched. Uh, they can't in many jurisdictions they can't possibly uh, deal with the murders that are already on their books, let alone ones that have gone cold, so to speak, and that can happen pretty quickly given given a bunch of criteria. But you've pointed out that, and you've done, you've proved it that we can help. There's lots of expertise out there that could help police, but still a resistance uh, amongst law enforcement to open up the books to the lay, the lay people out there. Yeah. You know what? It really varies by, by agency. And yeah, I founded the cold case society at Western, which is based loosely on the V doc society, which right. is uh, a group that meets in Philadelphia, a combination of scientists and ex law enforcement. Uh, and are, they're given full access to cold cases uh, this was a bit more of a simulation, more of an academic-based approach, but yeah, we had some tremendous successes. And since then, I don't want to call them imitators, but certainly this idea has has grown legs. And there's there's all kinds of groups now. One of them came forward last year proclaiming that they had unilaterally uh, figured out who the Zodiac killer was, and they named him my name and said, conversation over. No one really believes that. But I mean, this is an accredited group as well, and it's getting to be a crowded space. It's crowded even further by true crime pundits. So, I mean, the the Idaho murders most recently, I mean, it was just an absolute wall of noise created by people speculating on that, people claiming to have visions, people claiming to be investigators. So it is a slippery slope. It is a high wire act a little bit, but there are people, I'm thinking specifically of professional associations where where there's an underlying expertise, whether it be genealogy or, or dentistry or what have you, who I see as valuable stakeholders in this. And my group routinely relies on these people. I speak to these groups, sort of trying to remind them of uh, whether it be, you know, genealogical records, dental records. Uh, these are just two examples I've pulled out of thin air, but groups I've spoken to in the past and who have then come around and said, you know what, keep me on your short list of of, of people to call. And Things are changing with law enforcement a little bit for that reason, again, as well, in part because of the true crime zeitgeist, a, a group I'm also a consultant to in Ontario. Called, well, it's actually nationwide now called Please Bring Me Home. If your listeners Google them, they've also been the subject of a W5 episode and uh, are receiving a lot of cooperation from law enforcement in terms of narrowing places to search, using police trained cadaver dogs, uh, using ground penetrating radar to try to find uh, these people, again, who are missing presumed dead, uh, presumed in many cases to be the victims of serial killers and who need to be brought home, whose bodies need to be found for a multitude of reasons, but the the first of which forensically would be now the investigation can begin. Once the remains are found based on the current state of, of, of the art of DNA, these cases are now much more solvable. Yeah, we're getting tremendous cooperation from law enforcement, law enforcement partners, for instance, canine groups, search and rescue groups, and so forth. Because as you pointed out, there aren't many things out there that are as definitive as the death of someone as caused by someone else, where the files, if not being worked on, are simply put away and ignored. And that in of itself, uh, you point out that contradiction. There aren't many other cases such as that in anything out there where these files are simply put into the fridge, as you pointed out. Um, so, so the idea that others could help out and that the help is needed. I mean, I realize how how noisy the space can get and the Idaho murders were, were really a mess uh, on that front. But with proper help, properly guided, such as by someone like yourself, it sounds like it could be, I mean, it is an invaluable tool for an overworked space. Well, exactly. And uh, again, there's no statute of limitations on, on murder. So I mean, this is in part why cold cases are so important, because 
even if the offender is deceased. And we're seeing that more with genetic genealogy. I can think, for instance, the case of Christine Jessup, where Toronto police posthumously identified Calvin Hoover as her killer. I mean, this is a arguably the most infamous cold case in Canadian history, because, of course, it was also uh, corresponded with a wrongful conviction. Toronto police say they have finally cracked the case of Christine Jessup, who was killed in 1984. A neighbour was wrongly convicted, exonerated by DNA testing. Today, this man was named as Jessup's killer, Calvin Hoover, who was 28 at the time and known to the family. Police say new DNA technology linked him to the case. It's genetic genealogy that we have actually used. Genetic genealogy is a very useful tool in murder investigations such as this one. It is not a DNA match. What it is, is uh, it provides a potential, and I must stress a potential, uh, family uh, lineage from a DNA sample. This is one of those cases where science has won out over the justice system. Just offering the name and being able to clear the file, even if the offender is deceased, is so important. And they name him in part because, uh, and other police services had as well, because even though he's deceased, we know from the, the research, we know from the data uh, that they didn't just stop at one. Releasing the name and the photograph uh, will allow other people to come forward, maybe who knew him, knew of their other crimes, and, and certainly will allow more cases to be cleared. And, and, and that's why these you can't just give up. I mean, not to minimize other crimes, but you know what? Your, your car gets stolen. The insurance company replaces it. Uh, there's a reason why, you know, theft over 5,000 or grand theft auto in the U.S. have a grand larceny, have, have statutes of limitations. At some point, people need to move on. That's not the case when it comes to murder. Like you said, there are a few things as definitive and ultimately infinite. And as you put it, everybody counts or nobody counts. I mean, it's it's a Michael Connolly line, but it's still, yeah. it seems to kind of uh, propel you forward. Absolutely. And 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 that's why, I mean, I, I discovered those, those books after being interested in, in cold cases, but I would say for the aspiring police detective, cold case sleuth or or criminologist, they, they should be essential reading. And I actually make them companion texts to, to many of the more rigorous textbooks in, in my courses, because there's a whole philosophy Cold case investigation is not just about methodology, it's not just about science, but it's about adopting a philosophy. And, and that, to me, is the foremost requirement to be an effective, uh, what we call historical homicide investigator. Which I forgot to mention, by training, you're an archaeologist, amongst all those other things. So it, it made sense as well that you were to dig into this past in, in, in your hometown. Well, if you want to call an undergraduate education uh, by trade, I mean, ultimately that paved the way then for other primary source research, historical research that then became primarily uh, criminal in nature. And uh, I'd say actually just by dint of my you know, membership and associations and, and courses and books, I'd, I'd say I'm a, a criminologist uh, by training, inclusive right. of 15 years as a cop. Michael Hartfield, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Ben. <laughs> Well, last Friday marked the end of an era clouded by controversy here in Canada. The last remaining orca in captivity died at Marine Land in Niagara Falls at the age of 47. Kiska, as she was known, had been captured near Iceland back in 1979 and had lived at Marine Land in captivity for much of her life. Now, the park told the Niagara Falls Review that the killer whale's health had declined recently despite intensive interventions by her caregivers. For more than a decade, Kiska swam alone in her tank after, in 2011, SeaWorld in the U.S. won a bitter custody battle with Marineland 
over a young male killer whale that it wanted back and ultimately did get back. Over her time there, Kisika gave birth to five calves, but they all died young. And all of it added up to an unfortunate title for Kiska, the loneliest orca on earth. Here is one of her former Marineland trainers talking about her death. I'm angry that her suffering was allowed to continue unmitigated for as long as it did. Every new trainer always learnt uh, with Kiska because she was the most docile animal. She, was the, she had the calmest demeanor. Kiska's suffering, Kiska's death, Kiska's life and legacy will be that that inspired a great deal of change. And with her death, that up, she represents the last orca that will ever be in captivity in Canada. One of Kiska's trainers. Uh, now, in 2019, the federal government did indeed pass an anti-captivity law that made it illegal to import and keep uh, killer whales captive, although Kiska was grandfathered in. There are still dozens of orcas in captivity around the world, and for many, of course, Kiska's life and her death now will serve as a rallying call. Lori Marino is a neuroscientist and expert in animal behavior and intelligence uh, with the Whale Sanctuary Project. Lori, thank you. Thank you for having me. So I, th I think a lot of us saw the news of Kiska's passing last week and felt, um, you know, felt maybe it should have been different, right? It should have been different. She spent all those years by herself and it just didn't seem right. What was your, what was your thought, thoughts on her passing and her legacy? Well, uh, I was devastated. I still am. Uh, she was one of the whales who I thought really I wanted to bring to our sanctuary in Nova Scotia. I mean, she was the one that I always thought about when I thought about bringing whales into our sanctuary. And then unfortunately, that isn't going to happen. But her legacy now is to be a tipping point towards getting the rest of the whales and dolphins out, not only uh, out of marine land, but to really, really end keeping these animals in tanks for entertainment purposes. It doesn't work. It never has and we need to end it. Take me back in time a bit to where this began, because I knew there, I know obviously there was a commercial aspect to this. There always has been. There was a scientific aspect to it way back when. Where did this all begin and where do you think it all went wrong? Well, you know, when you think about marine parks, including zoos, they all began as entertainment venues. And orcas were captured on uh, the Pacific Northwest and brought in. And, you know, one died after the other. But eventually they were able to keep them alive for some time. And I think, you know, in the early days of marine parks, the public learned that orcas are not the killers, the uh, murderous animals that people thought they were. And so in, in that sense, it was a good thing that, that the public came to understand that these were uh, intelligent, uh, cultural beings. The the problem is, is that the public was so interested that the marine parks just kept going and capturing more and breeding them. And now we have orcas in all kinds of places around the world, and uh, they are a money-making attraction, unfortunately. So we're well past the point where we will be able to learn anything more about orcas from seeing them in marine parks, but yet it, it continues. How many are there now still, orcas specifically? I know you, you've talked about dolphins as well, but orcas specifically, how many are left in captivity around the world? Clearly, we know a lot about what's happening in the U.S., but I gather there are some in Europe, there are some in Japan, there are some in China. Yeah, there are. I don't know the exact number. It's upwards of 100. And the reason I don't know is because 
the big area right now where orchids are being displayed is in Asia and China and other places. They don't keep the same records. They tend to capture them from the wild, bring them in. When they die, they go and get more. They breed them. And we just don't have a good sense of that. I mean, there are 19 orchids left in the United States. And uh, there are several orchids around Europe, France, Spain, many other areas, as well as South America. So, you know, this is still a big problem. How much progress have we made in terms of legislation in individual jurisdictions to try to bring an end to this? I mean, orcas, as we know from Kiska, live a long time. So finding ways to to end captivity can be complex. But but what has been done in the last little while to try to address the situation? Canada recently, in 2019, passed a bill prohibiting the display of orcas and other cetaceans for entertainment purposes, as well as breeding. Unfortunately, Kiska and the beluga whales and bottomless dolphins at Marineland were grandfathered in, so they remain there. But Canada has some of the most progressive legislation against a dolphin and whale display, but it just doesn't help for those individuals who who are remaining marine land. And there are still about 35 to 40 beluga whales there and five bottomless dolphins. Progressive legislation is critically important, but there are loopholes. And unfortunately, uh, it's not always in time to save every single individual in terms of let's take the U.S. Then, in terms of the U.S., where are we at with with legis- with similar <laughs> legislation to what we saw in Canada? We don't have anything like what they have in Nothing. Canada. That that no no that bill S two hundred three was really progressive. Right now, there is a, a bill going through called the Swims Act, and it would prohibit breeding and importing of orcas and a number of other species. But uh, it, we have a long way to go with that. Getting bipartisan support is is a problem. You know, we're very far from the point where something like that passes, even just for orcas. So you, the United States is far behind Canada in that in that respect. Um, when you look at just just from a just from an animal intelligence point of view, tell me a bit about keeping orcas in captivity or cetaceans in general. What is it? What does it do to them? We understand that far better now than we did when we first started all this years ago. Yes, we do. We, we've known for many years now that uh, cetaceans don't fare well in concrete tanks. They just don't. The orcas and many other cetaceans are large, wide-ranging animals that dive. Uh, they have complex cultural lives. They spend a lot of time with their offspring, and learning is a very important part of their lives. They have very large, complex brains. They are not the kind of being that can thrive in an artificial, impoverished environment like a a concrete tank. Uh, It just doesn't work. And and the results of that, we know from a number of studies, are opportunistic infections, uh, systemic diseases, psychological symptoms like stereotypies and self-harming, high mortality. It's you name it. These are all impacts from the chronic stress of having to deal with living in an environment that just doesn't work. They are, a lot of them, though, I was reading, have been born in captivity, right? So what do you do with them? Because you can't just simply put them back in the ocean, right? We know that doesn't work either. You can't put them back in the ocean without some very careful planning. 
right. You really can't. I mean, the one that was successfully put back in the ocean, that took a lot of the free willy whale, Keiko, that took a tremendous amount of effort. And that animal was uh, not born in captivity. We know that those born in captivity actually (laughs) do worse than those taken from the wild. They just miss in the early part of their lives any of the input that they need from a natural social environment to survive. So, you know, those born in the tanks don't know how to feed themselves. They don't have a natural social group. They don't have the emotional support they need from a, from a group. They just are not equipped to live in the wild. There's nothing to go back to for them because they were born in, in an impoverished environment. So you can't just bring them back into the ocean. But what we can do, transfer them to authentic sanctuaries, ensure that at least for many of them who are candidates, we can provide uh, something of of a, a semblance of a natural life that at least gives them the opportunity to be more autonomous and live in a more rich environment where they have the opportunity to actually live as whales. Uh, We're building one in Nova Scotia, the Whale Sanctuary Project. But, you know, obviously there are many, many that need to be created in order to accommodate all of the orcas who are currently in concrete tanks uh, right here in the United States. But sanctuary is the answer. And in sanctuaries, there's no breeding. So eventually, once the animals are transferred to sanctuary, we'll end this practice of keeping these animals confined for our entertainment. How far along are you with the with the Nova Scotia Sanctuary Project, and 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 what are the what are the hurdles that you have to that you that you face? We've been uh, working at this for several years. We have the lease for the land uh, and the water space, and we just have a couple of more permitting issues to get through. We are hoping to welcome our first president in the spring of next year. Yeah, building sanctuary is not for the faint-hearted. It is a tough uh, uphill battle, especially when it's something that's never been done before like this. I'm convinced that it is the way forward uh, in order to end this this whole practice of keeping orcas and these other animals on display. And uh, we have a beautiful site, you know, Nova Scotia of over 100 acres. I wanted Kiska to be in that sanctuary. It won't be, wasn't meant to be for her, but it can be for others. And that's, that's what we have to think about now. And as we look at Kiska, I mean, often the quote used was the loneliest, the world's loneliest orca, right? And it's, and that in itself is a sad statement, but, but it, it just was too late for Kiska to be moved to that kind of facility. Is that, is that right? What happened there? Well, what happened is, well, we had been in touch with the with the uh, owners of Marine Lands, but they stopped uh, communicating with us. And we really wanted to maintain an open dialogue with them, because when our sanctuary is ready, we wanted to dialogue with them about whether Kiska would be a candidate and come there and work with them to get her healthy enough to be transferred to our sanctuary. And that was the plan. That was what, you know, we were striving for. But you can't do that if the facility that holds the animals don't, doesn't want to communicate with you. We were unable to find out much about her condition or, or anything uh, that was going on there. And it's just really unfortunate because uh, we, we were ready to put together a plan for her to bring her to sanctuary. You mentioned earlier that legislation was passed not that long ago, mind you, but what would you like Kiska's legacy to be then? 
to be one that uh, sounds the end of of for of captivity, not just for the remaining whales and dolphins in Canada, but uh, for it to be a point where there is a more global push to end this this uh, industry. It is not <laughs> the kind of it is an industry where the animals are exploited. They do not have good welfare. It needs to end. Uh, she is unfortunately an example of sort of everything that's wrong with orca captivity and cetacean captivity in general. Unfortunately, all rolled up in, in one very, very tragic life. Lori Marino, thank you so much. Thank you. Have you ever dreamed of kind of giving it all up and hitting the high seas for three years? Three years is how long this one is. It's a three-year cruise. It leaves on November the 1st from Istanbul in Turkey. And it is going to stop in 375 ports in 135 countries on all seven continents. Now, the way they're trying to market this to people is that, hey, are you remote working at home in your basement somewhere? Why not come do it on the high seas? We have Wi-Fi. You can do it here. And the cost, I mean, it's it fluctuates depending on what kind of room you have. But U.S., you know, 30-ish, 30,000-plus per year, more or less. That's double occupancy, I think. But we'll get more details about the, the pricing and so on. But that includes, like, everything you normally get on a cruise, which is food. And, you know, you have laundry facilities. And it's all there for you. And you go to all these different places around the world. Now, it's not for everyone, right? If you don't like cruising, if you don't like being on cruise ships, then clearly it's not for you. But if you've ever wanted to see 135 countries uh, and stop at 375 ports all around the world and do that for three years while working, potentially, and there are some... If you're Canadian, you can't leave the country for that long at once. If you want to keep your health care, there's all kinds of rules involved. Still, if you figure that stuff out, um, why not, right? I mean, maybe. It would be on something called the MV Gemini. And to tell us all about it, Irina Strembitsky is the co-founder and director of sales and marketing at Life at Sea. The name says it all. Life at Sea Cruises. Thanks for your time. Nice to be here, Ben. Thank you. Well, this has garnered quite a few headlines. Tell me about this three-year cruise. Who are you looking to attract? We're looking to attract people that want to see it all in three years. Um, we're, and if you give us three years, we'll take you to seven continents, 375 destinations, 135 countries at a leisurely pace, spending about two to seven days at each port. And, and, and who do you, I mean, how much does this cost? Because I've seen a lot of a lot of uh, articles out there saying, well, you know, for less than you'd pay rent in Manhattan or many other big cities in America or Canada right now, you can take a three-year cruise instead. This comes out to be less than rent in a small town, not to mention in Manhattan. Um, so our cruises are fairly all-inclusive, where it includes your food, includes, of course, your lodging, but it also includes your housekeeping, entertainment, um, activities, port taxes, gratuity. So it's not just uh, you paying for a cab, and you're also paying for the all-inclusive service. So the cost depends on how many people are in the actual uh, cabin. So they're approximately, so we actually um, have sold out of some of the uh, lower uh, starting cabins. Already? So right now, low, yes. <laughs> already. Sold out. Yes, yeah. we're, on, we're more than half booked already. And I'm getting a booking every few minutes at this point. So I do want to say that right now, I would say it's about 
close to 40,000, about 36,000 persons where it starts at based on double occupancy. Um, and if you're a solo traveler, there'll be approximately 55,000 for the uh, per year for you to, to do this. So, so again, it's a little less if you're double occupancy versus solo, but that it's a very inclusive plan. So that doesn't just include the cruise, that includes again your food, your housekeeping, your laundry, your gratuity for us to entertain you, um, your music, all the, thi- all the things you associate with a cruise, right? Absolutely, yes. And that's the that's the bottom, right? Like that's that's for the basic room, right? If you want something a little fancier with a nice view, you pay a bit more. We're sold out of the insides, and uh, so the the one I'm quoting is kind of the outside with the ocean view, right? Um, so yeah, some of the balcony ones will go to approximately about a hundred or hundred ten thousand a year per person. Um, so some of the balcony suites are a little more. Some of the um, junior suites are a little more. Uh, but most of them are approximately in about the 40000 per year range per person. And I gather you've set this up as well as a way that people, now that you can work remotely, that this would also be an opportunity for people to work remotely on the high seas. Absolutely. Uh, about half of our um, half of the bookings are coming from people that are still working. We're getting a lot of international business travelers that uh, currently, they're working from their homes and they're traveling overseas uh, for business. Now they're going to do the same thing from the ship. So we're running about half and half. Uh, one of our big differences is a state-of-the-art business center and the high-speed Wi-Fi. Most cruise ships, if not all, do not have the type of business center that, that we're putting in with not just conference space and, and semi-private offices, but you're a- actually able to rent a private office if you like. You can work there all day. All of the cabins have built-in um, desks for you to work from your cabin. And we're uh, we're going to have Starlink Internet, which is the top of the line that you could have on a cruise. Right. So uh, we expect people to be able to continue working just like they have. So you're, we're looking at 135 countries on all seven continents, 375 ports, 208 overnight stops. Uh, that's a lot of mileage. That's a lot of mileage. So tell me about some of the highlights then for uh, for this. This, I mean, you, you're basically stopping everywhere, right? Well, we have the most Our itinerary is the, the best thing about the cruise, and we have really put so much thought into it. Some of my personal favorite destinations that I feel like also will be popular are Tokyo, Shanghai, Fiji, American Samoa, French Polynesia, Australia, New Zealand, Bali, Singapore, Maldives, the Seychelles, Antarctica, it's exciting, Florence, Barcelona, and uh, numerous ports in Iceland. Uh, we're going to all of the cool destinations following the sun, so we're going to have good weather. Uh, that's pretty much where we're going everywhere. Um, it's and and we are going to be spending two to seven days in these places where you can really get to explore and really get the feel of these countries. You're not in and out. You're there to really discover and feel and touch and see. And and when you leave, you will feel like you you are part of that part of that island or that country. Right. So, so you're not just doing the overnight stops. You can actually, you're stopping for longer than that. Yes. Many of the, for instance, in Shanghai, we'll be there for about seven days. We'll be, uh, we'll spend seven days at the Maldives. Absolutely. Some of them, uh, it's anywhere from two to seven days in these, some of these desired ports uh, where you can really um, do a lot of things. I mean, we're, we're putting a lot of humanitarian excursions as well, where uh, you'll be able to, um, 
help some of the local communities with some of the some of the buildings of the commercial buildings and residential and really get involved on some of our long stays. And seven days is enough time to really explore the different, the cultural, uh, try the food, um, you know, see the animals and really kind of go at it from every aspect and really feel like, you know, you've kind of learned a country. A lot of people want to hike every mountain and they want to play at every golf course. So being there for two to seven days will give you the opportunity to really do what you love and see whatever part you're interested in. Uh, any warnings? I mean, three three years at sea. I know you can sort of get on and off, and I gather there's some opportunity to share the cost with another individual or another couple, for instance. Uh, but any words of warning? Three years at sea is is a long time. Absolutely. Well, it's three years to see it all. So the reason it takes three years is because if you want to see all seven continents and you want to spend the two to seven days of port, that's how long it takes to get around. We feel that. For many people, once you do this cruise, you really don't really need to to travel. To ever travel again. <laughs> Correct. To some extent, this is like the experience of a lifetime. It's for some people that are up in age, this is probably their last experience of this type due to how difficult it is to travel by plane. I mean, it's difficult at any age, but to be able to do a 20-hour flight to Australia, you know, that's probably not doable for a lot of people. So this is like your bucket list adventure but you know what, though, most people that love to travel, they typically have friends and family that love to travel. So you can absolutely go in with your best friends and do you do 18 months and they do 18 months or you do a year, they do a year and then you both split the final year. So uh, most we found that most people that love to travel have other friends and relatives that also want to do this. So it's that this this is a way if you want to split it up, that is something that's up to you to do it any kind of way you would like. How does it work for the jurisdiction? Because I know, of course, at the high seas, you're in international waters, right? And we're all citizens of somewhere. So how does it work for stuff like illness and incidentals and people? And if you get like all those little things in life that you do actually worry about sometimes, how does that work if you're going on a cruise that's this long and and with destinations this spread out? Well, being on our, well, being on the cruise does not give you any type of citizenship. So whatever Indeed. citizenship you have, you still have that. Each country has different laws to as far as how long you can be gone. And that is something for you to to check. There's certain countries I know with, in, in Canada, there's certain restrictions with the health insurance. Right. And we do expect for people to kind of know and, and look at, into their specific countries. We're not aware of what every law every country has. We are going to have um, a like a mini hospital on the ship for, for, for most things. Uh, we do highly recommend that people carry their emergency travel insurance for something that happens, something major that happens. But we'll be able to treat most things that, that happen on the ship. But yeah, if you know, there, there may be situations that you may have to go back to Canada once a year and and, and, and check in and do what you got to do to keep that insurance active. Those are kind of country by country. But a lot of people we found do want to do that where they, they do plan on coming off maybe once a year. I mean, people have a wedding, life doesn't stop, you know, at home just because you're gone. Right. So we, we have found that a lot of people are planning to leave the ship at least once a year to come back to their home country for numerous things. And then catch up with you at another, de- at another port. Catch up at another port. And it makes good business sense for you to have everyone pay up in advance for this long of a cruise, as opposed to just doing individual like week or 10 day or two week cruises out of a single port. I know people sometimes, I just had one of my relatives went on a cruise and it was wonderful, but she said it was half empty. Um, maybe it wasn't a popular week. 
Um, so in our case, yeah, the whole you have to pay up, pay for your three years before you before you go. Um, so we know that we've collected for the three for the three year journey. We right. we budgeted it. We have put in what we think what everything's going to cost. So um, there's it's definitely the budget's definitely there. And this is just something very popular. And you know the way it's going. I mean, we never it's. I mean, we can't, we have we've had ten thousand people contact us the last couple of days. We we're having trouble keeping up with the inquiries, and we keep apologizing to people. But I don't know the time. You would have to have a staff of a thousand to keep up with what we we have had to do with. Um, so the as far as the popularity, this is going to sell out. This literally is going to sell out as soon as we get a chance to, talk, to call people back. That's how busy it is. As soon right. as we talk to someone, they book. It's just we're delayed to even get with people. We're asking people, just please give us a couple of days. We're working around the clock. Um, so this is just, this is very popular. There's no doubt it's going to sell out this. I mean, it's going to sell out this month. Um, if, you know, if not, like I said, it's just really. If all, of course, according to plan. And when do you sail? When does this all set November sail, so 1st. to speak? November 1st. And that's another thing that's now, it, is it soon for some people? Yes, it is. However, are there people that want to do things now? A lot of cruises, a lot of world cruises sell years in advance. And then you never know how you're going to feel in two or three years, how just how your health, well, what's going to be going on. This is great because you get to do this now. You know, you get to do this this year. So this time, this year, somebody could be on the beach at the coolest port living this dream life. So that's another um, thing that I think has drawn a lot of people where this isn't something that's a dream, years in the making, a potential. This is actually, we have a ship, we have a date, and we are going soon. So it's almost like, get ready for it now. The excitement starts, the countdown starts. It's 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 pretty close. I know you've done cruises, Irina, I'm sure you have. What would you advise someone out there who's never been on a cruise who's thinking, this sounds like a good idea? Because it does take some getting used to, right? It's the sea, it's communal living, it's sort of that whole environment that's on a cruise. It, it you, I imagine there must be some warning out there for people like, well, I've never been on a cruise, but I'll do this. Well, this is interesting because Probably uh, at least a quarter of the people that are booking are not major cruisers. It's people that want to travel the world. A lot of the customers are the United States. So if you want to go to Australia, it's just the one leg is going to be 20 some hours. So it's people that don't want to do that, but they want to see Australia. They want to see the French Polynesia. They want to see Tokyo without flying 16 hours. If you want to see the world, this is the easiest and, and most cost-effective way to do it. Irina so, Stravitsky, yeah, I really appreciate you filling us in on this. So November 1st, it sets sail from Istanbul, am I right? Yes. Oh, great. Well, good luck. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me on. It's been so wonderful. 